Well, today, as Ron said, we begin a new series, which we're calling Next. We're asking what's next for us as a church. As anyone who's been here for a while knows, we're normally working through books of the Bible. We're currently in Exodus and hitting pause on that for this six-week series. But we do occasionally take a few weeks here or there, like this six-week series, where we work from a passage of the Bible uh, to our own local church context to seek to apply biblical principles in ways that may redirect, in ways that might reignite, ways that might refine our plans uh, for ministry going forward. And it's very important, even if you've heard me say something like this before, it's important we say this. That when we ask something like, what is next for us as a church, there must be a twofold answer to that. On the one hand, nothing is next for us. We've been given our marching orders in the scriptures long, long ago. It's clear what we're to do. Jesus and the apostles wrote it down, and we have it in black and white. And may we never be a church that seeks to replace the non-negotiables of Scripture with anything new or novel or even seemingly successful. On the other hand, every healthy church will, from time to time, reconsider how they're putting those biblical principles to work. How? They meet together. How they carry out those biblical marching orders. Hebrews 10 verse 24 tells us to consider how to stir up love and good works. What's the best way? What are some good ways? So praying together. Well, that's a given. That's in the Bible. We know we're supposed to do it. If we chose to have a Wednesday night prayer time, that would be a good idea perhaps. That would be a, a, an application of that biblical principle. Or if we said, yes, the Bible teaches us to be devoted to teaching. That's Acts 2, 42. Yes, but then a class on marriage held at 1045, which we've offered from time to time, would be our, our attempts at considering how to stir up love and good works in marriages. Let me offer a football illustration for all this, since we're at week six of the NFL season. In the NFL, there is the rule book, and then each team, week to week, has their playbook. Rule book, playbook. The rule book is how the game has to be played. It's what must happen. So a team can't decide to throw the football through the uprights for the extra point, Someone wrote down a long time ago, it has to be kicked to get that extra point. Or they can run it into the end zone for a two-point conversion. Uh, teams can't line up any way they want. There are formations that are allowed and formations that are, are illegal. That's the rule book. But then there's the playbook. And this is what each team comes up with week to week for their best attempts their best ideas for playing the game to the best of their ability according to the rules. Now for the church, our rule book is the Bible. We have it. 
And unlike the NFL rule book, which might change year to year, ours doesn't. We've got to know what it says. We've got to do what it says. We can't ignore sections of it. We can't add to it. But the church will have some place. Every church, in fact, will have some plays that they've drawn up. They have the playbook. Uh, every church has a playbook, even if it's not very good. Some churches are so creative with their playbook that they're constantly running up against the rule book. And some churches, whether because of um, an unbiblical tradition or just laziness, their playbook just stinks. They keep running the same plays, and week after week, they're, they're just not working. So keep that illustration in mind throughout these six weeks because we'll bounce back and forth between matters of rule book and matters of playbook. And as for today, for the majority of our time, we'll focus on what is rule book before we get a little bit to the playbook. Not to confuse things, we also have a guidebook today. And that has nothing to do with my illustration about rule book and playbook. Uh, but you do have a guidebook, and Ron already introduced you to that. And I just want to mention that there's a sermon notes section. So you can either use the sermon notes page in the back of the bulletin, like every week, or you can follow along in page 25 and following for some sermon notes there, where you've got the text for the week, space for note-taking, and then, as Ron said, there are some application questions there that you can work through with others later on. Let me read our passage for today. It's Nehemiah 8, if you want to turn there in your own Bibles, or look on the screens, or find the text in that guidebook you have. Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Micaiah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadai, Maasai, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites. They all helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the, book of the, from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, 
And Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Well, here we have an Old Testament worship service. And the word of God is clearly at the center of it all. The word is the substance of it all. There must be 10 to 12 references to the Bible here in just as many verses. The Word is the the driving force behind it all. It's, It's why they've assembled. It's what they've come to hear. It's what they need to hear. It's what Ezra and his colleagues will deliver. And it's what they will respond to. The Word. The Word shapes and the Word saturates their worship. The word shapes their lives and even shapes their emotions, we could say. Let me offer four headings, all of which are related to the word in the worship of God. First, they were eager for the word. They were eager for it. The people told Ezra to bring the book. That is the law of Moses. That is the first five books of our Bibles. Small side note, it wasn't a book. These were scrolls. They read from scrolls in these days. But it's singular here. There's a single entity because it's it's the book of Moses. And that's why our English translations have the book. It's a word. It's the word. I love that phrase. Bring the book, the people said. Can you picture it? I mean... A clamor arose from among the people about the word of God. You can imagine one man, he started with just a shout, Bring the book, Ezra! His buddy said, Yeah, bring the book! And it spread, and it spread, and all the people said, Bring the book! Oh man, this is what every preacher wants. People who, who want the book. I welcome you. I welcome you to to literally follow the example of Nehemiah 8. And and if we pass in the foyer on a Sunday morning before a service, you might say, bring it. Bring the book. You got the book, preacher? I got the book. They were eager for the word. They were hungry for it. Now, I can think of an almost endless list of alternatives that churches offer and that Christians want. Bring the, what would you say? The book. Paul Kemp reminded us from 2 Timothy 4 just last week that that Timothy was charged to preach the word in season and out of season, 
Paul says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, thankfully, the people in Nehemiah 8 were not of the itchy-eared type. And the saints at Desert Springs Church are not of the itchy-eared kind. But this is a good time for us to do a checkup. For us to make sure, for us to ask ourselves personally, individually, what do we want out of a Sunday morning? What do we expect? What would we want more of if only they would do it? And they said, bring the book. Bring the good advice. Bring the humor, some might say. Bring the smoke machine, others might say. Bring compelling, engaging stories while you hold a baby kitten. That's powerful. That's, that is powerful. But what we need is the book. We need a people who want the book, and we need a man of God to bring the book. And that's why they called Ezra to bring the book. Ezra, because in Ezra 7, verse 10, we learn that Ezra had set his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach God's statutes in Israel. Now, this is as good a time as any to briefly give you some of the background for the book of Nehemiah. A big mile marker in the Old Testament story is the Babylonian captivity where Judah was taken captive by Babylon and Jerusalem, their city, and its walls and its temple, they were all destroyed. For 70 years, God was disciplining his wayward people, giving them effectively a time out away from the land, away from his blessings. But it was just a time out. It was not to be permanent. God wasn't done with them. He was just disciplining them. And so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah go together to record the return of the people from Babylon to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the city and the temple. And here's the short of it. It's slow going and it's messy and it's frustrating. There are ups and downs. There's opposition. There's apathy among the people. And nevertheless, things get built. The book of Ezra records the temple being rebuilt. And Nehemiah leads the project of rebuilding the walls of the city. So by Nehemiah 8, the temple's been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt. It's as if that what came before Nehemiah 8 focused primarily on the rebuilding of physical structures, and now Nehemiah 8 records spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal that's, that's needed and hasn't yet taken place. And so, with that in mind, a crowd, thirsty for the word after 70 years in Babylon, they meet up, at the Watergate. No, not that apartment in Washington, D.C. that Nixon's men broke into. The Watergate was just a spot at the city wall where people would go in and out for water. 
because there was a nearby spring there. It was simply a, a busy place. It was a good place to meet because men and women and all who could understand could be there. And many of them already were there. They assembled there eager for the word. Secondly, they were united around the word. They were united. They gathered as one man, it says in verse 1. A phrase which portrays the mass of the people. You can picture like an aerial photo of a great big sea of people and you can sense the oneness of it. There's a reason we call it a crowd. It's a single thing. You can imagine that's what it looked like there. But that they gathered as one man also expresses something about their unity, their shared devotion, their unified purpose. They gathered together for the word and hence they were united around the word. Their unity and their shared devotion, their shared experience here is seen in that repetition of the phrase, all the people. Nine times we read, all the people. All the people called for the book. All the people listened intently. All the people responded to it. It would seem that the people were even involved in the making of a wooden platform for the occasion. Verse 4, Ezra stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. They made this elevated wooden platform for a very practical reason that Ezra might be heard and seen. But there's also something about the word-centeredness of it all. The word-exaltedness of this moment. It's not elevated Ezra's not elevated because Ezra is special, but Ezra stands in this elevated position because the word of God that he brings is special. Many of you will know that in the days preceding the Reformation, the church, the church buildings would have the pulpit off to the side, and at the center would be the communion table. But as the implications of sola scriptura, scripture alone, in the Reformation days began to trickle down in their implications, the pulpit was moved to the center of the room, not to communicate any unimportance about communion, but that there's a word priority a logical and even chronological priority to the word. You see, we couldn't make heads or tails of the symbol of the Lord's Supper without the Word telling us what it means. Scripture and sacrament always go together, and the Word always comes first. That's why we'll never partake of the Lord's Supper and then have a sermon. Word, then sacrament. And that's why our church, like any church in that Reformation tradition, has this pulpit right here in the center. And by the way, I love this pulpit. This was made by my friend and staff colleague, Ian Bird. And I love what this pulpit represents. I love the way it looks. I love its simplicity and ruggedness, its weight. 
Ron Giese and I had to pick it up last week, and we barely made it. It's that heavy, right? It's a little embarrassing. I love its lack of ornamentation. I love this spot. This is where my Bible goes. Uh, this is what I get to stand behind to bring the book to you that we might understand it together. Which leads thirdly to the understanding of the word. They were understanding the word. What a huge emphasis understanding has in our passage. Five times we read the words understand or understood. Ezra read from the book, but not just read from it, he explained it. And then his colleagues, the names of which I will not read for you again. His colleagues in verse 7, they also helped out. They helped the people to understand. Verse 8, they read from the book clearly and gave the sense, the meaning. They, they broke it up is literally the Hebrew there. So that the people would understand the reading. And all of this was over the course of, it says, morning till midday. Probably six hours. So we can piece it together like this. We can surmise that Ezra would read, and then he would do his explaining, and then perhaps he would pause, and then the Levites <clears throat> would move out, almost like community group leaders or Sunday school teachers, and in smaller groups they would read some more, explain some more, help, help them understand, clarify. And of course all that is a two-way street between leaders and non-leaders. The people must want the book and want to understand the book. And the pastors must bring the book and give the book and try to bring understanding about the book. And all this takes time. Maybe not six hours. Six hours isn't prescriptive here so that every worship service going forward has to be six hours. Now, their situation was definitely unique in that they hadn't had much of the word in over 70 years. They had some making up to do. But because of what this is, because of what's going on, because this is God's word, because they want to hear from God, and because they want to be changed by God, well, it's, it isn't exactly something you can microwave. It's not a microwavable meal. Mark Dever pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist, he often says in his sermons, if you're looking to get your soul serviced in less than 30 minutes, like a spiritual jiffy lube, this probably isn't the church for you. And there are plenty of churches offering just that. Well, however, however long a church decides to meet together in corporate worship, there should be some seriousness to it and some earnestness to it and, and some sort of unhurriedness about it. Which leads, fourthly, to their response. Responding to the word. They responded to the word as we all should. That's how it works. God reveals and then we respond. God speaks and then we respond. And there are several layers to their response to the word of God. One is affirmation in verse 6. They said, 
Amen, amen. It is true. It is true. Yes, yes. Now, if you know how to do that, say amen right now. Okay, that's good. Now, if you affirm what you've heard from God's word this morning, say amen. Amen. If you sometimes feel in urge to vocally affirm the preaching of God's word on a Sunday, but you hold back because no one else is doing it, you don't want to stand out. If that's ever been you, say amen. 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 If you wish more people in this church would vocally affirm the preaching of God's word, say amen. 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 We're getting better already. (laughs) They affirmed what they heard. They worshiped in awe and humility, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. There's a physical expressiveness about their worship. In our context, usually those physical expressions more easily go along with the singing that we do together. And certainly in the Psalms, we have that connection between singing and various physical expressiveness. But however and wherever it happens, there seems to be this typical or ideal flow, head, heart to hands. In other words, we think on God's truth, we process it, we ponder it, we chew on it. That should stir our hearts. Our hearts should bubble, as it were, with emotion, passion for God. And occasionally, so much so, that it almost has to like sneak out. It's got to get out. It's got to vent somehow. And you're looking for some sort of way of expressing yourself physically. And if you say, that's for a certain personality type, that's for others with a charismatic background, it's not me, man. Maybe. But maybe just watch football today and watch some fans. <laughs> and when their team does something bad... Heads are down. Like they literally, ah, they fall down. And when their team scores a touchdown, that's unbelievable. Yeah, they can't help it. Everyone is a charismatic at an NFL game. (laughs) We may not feel very bubbly every Sunday. It may not reach our fingertips each week, but it's, it's what we're shooting for. It's, it's the ideal, it's the way it's supposed to go, head, heart, outward, even in the body. That's why we sing not only with joy, but according to the Psalms, we're to sing for joy. Singing can actually stir up these very things. They wept. Another part of their response is they wept and mourned, verse 9. They wept when they heard the words of the law. Why do they weep? Well, consider what was being read to them. The first five books of the Bible, which contain God's laws, but also contain a historical record of God's faithfulness and his people's unfaithfulness. Books like Numbers and Deuteronomy are so sad for the persistence 
of the unbelief and rebellion of the Israelites in the wilderness. These people were hearing story after story after story. Many of them, perhaps they forgot. Some of them they've never heard. Consider where they've been, these people in Nehemiah 8. They've been in Babylon. And the book of Ezra goes to great lengths to address this major problem they were facing that many of them in Babylon had married Babylonian girls. What do you do now? God said not to do it. They did it. It's a problem. So they mourned. And consider how things have gone if you read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. I said already in these great building projects of Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple and the walls, so many people were just apathetic, even oppositional. And so they rightly repented. And yet they were told not to mourn, but to rejoice and celebrate. Look at verse 10. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing. That's what they did. Verse 11. All the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They were told to not mourn, first because they already had mourned. You see, their mourning wasn't wrong or inappropriate. I think their repentance was right. It's just that repentance doesn't stay in repentance. By its very nature, it moves from guilt to grace to gratitude. Repentance should, should lead us not only to assurance of forgiveness, but a celebration of forgiveness. This reminds me of Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. They were told not to mourn because they already had mourned. They were told not to mourn because this day is holy, three times it says that, verse 9 and 10 and 11, this day is holy. Well, this day was the first day of the seventh month, and according to Leviticus 23, that's the Feast of Trumpets. Now, we don't know much about the Feast of Trumpets. We don't know what it was celebrating or memorializing, but whatever it signified or memorialized, it was a happy thing. Leviticus 23 says it's a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets. That's celebratory. And another reason to not grieve is found in verse 10. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's a curious phrase, isn't it? It could mean that God gives us joy, which is a strength to us. But it probably means instead that God's joy is a strength to us. His experience of joy. If I can paraphrase, it'd go like this. Don't be grieved. Think of what kind of God we have. He is the God who delights to do good to his people. Let his joy be your strength. 
which is so much more encouraging than the first possible interpretation because, because this can be an encouragement to those who don't feel joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Oh, you who mourn, you who weep, let go. You serve the happy God. He delights to do you good. This is your strength. And this strength may actually result in your joy, as it sure did for these people. They went their way to eat and drink, to send portions to those who don't have anything, to make great rejoicing because they understood. So how shall we respond? How shall we, how shall you respond to God's word this morning? James, in the New Testament, warns us not to be hearers of the word only, but doers also. So will Nehemiah 8 mean for you? Does it mean for you a fresh resolve to make Sunday mornings a greater priority in your schedule? Will it mean a renewed orientation in your coming to meet with the saints on Sunday morning? Will it mean fresh eagerness, expectancy, and hunger for the word? Because we're the people who say, bring the book. Will it mean for you a new willingness, a new, a newfound freedom to respond to the word of God and the worship of God with vocal affirmation or even physical expression? Will it mean for you a, a resolve to listen more attentively to the sermon? I, I'm a sermon listener myself. I know what happens. I know the mental exercise in listening to a sermon, and I know the tendency for my mind to just go someplace else for a bit and then pop back in. They listen attentively. Perhaps for some here, it'll mean a moment of mourning over your sin, following their lead here. And for others, it'll mean a renewed vigor to actually celebrate God's amazing grace. It says they, they went out their way to feast and to make great rejoicing. Some are saved and their sins are forgiven, but they bear the guilt of their sins in their consciences and rarely leave a church clicking their heels or like Malachi says, leaping like a calf from the stall. Or like Ecclesiastes says, going and eating your bread and drinking your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved of what you do. And we know from the New Testament, he approved of what you do, not because you've done so well. He approves of what you do because he approves of his son who did it for you. So if you haven't yet heard that, please hear this. Please hear that this church is not interested in your money if you're not a Christian. This church is not trying to get you just to keep coming because we like crowds. We're not trying to get you to do anything except to see that Jesus has done it for you. Dying on the cross, raising on the third day, he offers us, us, offers us his righteousness, his very life. 
He offers us the payment for sin. Then we're approved by God when we believe that to be true. And then we can go our way with a merry heart, knowing God has already approved of us on account of his son. Now, it may feel like the sermon is just about done, but it's not. Because that was all rule book stuff. Remember rule book, playbook? The basic description of corporate worship that we find in Nehemiah 8 is sort of spelled out in the New Testament along the same ways. So they're doing the same things that we see in the New Testament. We just have a narrative of it in Nehemiah 8. They're gathering for the word. They're eager for the word, united around the word, trying to understand the word and responding to the word with repentance and joy and celebration and sharing. All those are givens. Those are our marching orders. And like the directions on the back of a shampoo bottle, wash, rinse, repeat, we just keep doing those. We just keep doing those. We just keep doing those. But let's begin to move from playbook to rule book. And here, I confess, there is some overlap. And so here's where my analogy of NFL's rule book and various playbooks breaks down a little because the NFL's rule book and the coach's playbook are two different books. But for the church and its mission and its plans, it's not always neat and tidy. It's not always clear. So take this phrase in Nehemiah 8.1 that they gathered as one man. Or take this word in verse 2 of Nehemiah 8 They're called the assembly, which, by the way, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, assembly here is ekklesia. That's what we call in the New Testament the church. This is the church in the Old Testament, you could say. So let's take some of these ideas to the New Testament. Let me ask you some questions, and I'll answer them for us. What is a New Testament church. What is an ecclesia? And what does it do? Well, we could answer that a number of ways. We really could. Legitimately answer it a number of ways. But most fundamentally, a church is a gathering. That's what it does. It gathers. The church is an assembly. What do assemblies do? They assemble. So when shall this New Testament thing called the church or ecclesia, when should it assemble? Well, it can meet as often as it wants, but Sunday seems like a priority. It's called the Lord's Day in the Bible. It's the first day of the week where the Christians were meeting in Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16. That's when. What shall the church do when it assembles? Well, Nehemiah 8 helped us out. That's the narrative of what we find in the New Testament. Let's just say, well, basically, worship like Nehemiah 8 shows us. Where shall the church assemble? Where can it assemble? Well, the church of the Old Testament met at the water gate. In the New Testament, Acts 5, verse 12, this is 3,000 plus people. They were all together in Solomon's portico, a a part of the temple that was a pavilion. 
So it had a roof overhead, but it was wide open otherwise. And it was big enough for thousands to fit. That's where the church met. In Acts 19, the Apostle Paul seemed to rent out a public hall, the Hall of Tyrannus. He rented it out seemingly for corporate worship and also evangelistic opportunities. Some churches had saints in those churches with homes large enough to host the church meeting. So Romans 16.5, the church in their house. He's referring to the house of Priscilla and Aquila. They were wealthy, wealthy enough to house a church. By the early 200s AD, Christians were starting to designate buildings for the church's meeting. It took a while, it did. 240, I think, was maybe the first building designated as a church. It was a house that was renovated to be a church building. You say, well, why did it take so long if church buildings are okay? Maybe we should get back to, you know, the real New Testament days of meeting in Solomon's portico or some other outdoor pavilion. Well, it took time for there to be the freedom to do so. It took time for Christians to be recognized as an entity where they could own property. What we find in the New Testament is a variety of different meeting places, and later on, especially in times and places where there were the means and the freedom to do so, churches have built churches. And so as I said a couple of weeks ago, and also at our worship and vision nights, we're thankful that people who were here before I came decided to invest money for this building to be built right here. And for over 17 years, we've been meeting in this building, and we've been pondering in recent days just all that that represents. This building isn't a holy building, but holy and awesome things have taken place in this building among these 17 years in it. Of course, the church is not a building. It is a people, but it's a people who gather by definition, and those people have to gather somewhere. How shall they gather then? How? In what form? Well, for most of this church's existence, we have met at 9 o'clock and 10.45, two services. And that certainly has some practical advantages to it. For one, it's, it's more financially efficient than having the space for both of these services to fit into one room. But there are also some downsides. Like not knowing people who only go to the other service. Ever encountered that? I've never met you. When did you come to Desert Springs? Eight years ago. What? How come? We go to the 1045. Ah, we're nine o'clock. We have baptisms that take place with half the church. The other half will see some other baptisms. When we do the Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings, which we do four times a year, people like me who are in both services, we partake twice because I don't know what else to do. And I'm not even sure why that feels weird, but 
I don't know. I don't think you're supposed to be taking the Lord's Supper like M&Ms all day or something. And we might just lose something of the beauty and the unity of gathering as one man. What do we find when we come to the New Testament with these gatherings? Let me just run through some verses. Acts 5, verse 12, I already read it. They were all together in Solomon's portico, all together. Acts 6, verse 2, the 12, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and then said some things. In Acts 14, verse 27, they gathered the church together, which the same phrase is found in chapter 15 and chapter 20 at other churches. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says a total of five times, when you come together. And sometimes he's pointing out something bad they're doing, but the assumption is they're coming together. That wasn't wrong. They were coming together. That's what they did. So we elders have been asking ourselves about these verses in recent days, studying them, thinking about them. We've been asking whether we see multiple services in the New Testament. And we've been coming up short, quite honestly. We've been thinking over those metaphors for the church that we find in the Bible, like a body with its parts or partaking of one bread or or that the church is a family made up of a household. We've been asking ourselves, why not one church in one service? Why not? When ecclesia means gathering, and that's what the church does, it gathers. When all the descriptions of the church's gatherings, like I just read, is of a whole church in a single location at the same time, even at such great inconvenience, far greater inconvenience than it would be for us. When one service would encourage far more unity and familiarity, why not? Well, I've likened all this to the Hickman family dining table. I didn't tell Tim I was going to do this, so my apologies, Tim. Tim Hickman's one of our elders. He and Jamie have eight lovely children. So imagine if their dining room table sat six. I mean, six is all. That's it. Six is crammed in, and they're a family of ten. Imagine if for some time, maybe years, they just made that work. You know, they rotate four kids off to another small table. Um, Which four are going tonight, honey? Which four are going tomorrow? And we've all done something like that around the holidays. you got extra family in town. Someone sets up the card table, which is the kids' table. you just got to make it work. But, but that's Christmas. And let's imagine, for the Hickmans, it's, it's every day. It's, it's always. So imagine one day Tim says to Jamie, Honey, we got to do something about this. It's going to cost us a big chunk of change. But I think we can scrape enough together and save up for 
a little bit more and get a table that not only seats 10, but like 12 or 14 so that we can not only sit together as a family, but also have guests with us. And Jamie gulps because 12 top tables are expensive. But then she says, I love it. Let's, let's just figure it out. We'll make it work. Because having dinner together every night is a good thing. So we, your shepherds, we think we should sit together every Sunday. Because we love this church. We just want to make that work. And so with a balcony in this room, a balcony of almost 300 seats like you see here, uh, with a, a renovated floor plan that would not only add seats but make the getting to those empty seats way more efficient than our current layout. We could be one church in one service and by the way, if you're wondering about the math, we would only be at about 60% capacity. So we've got room for our friends. You might ask, is this rule book stuff? Or is this just something we're putting in the playbook? Well, it's at least playbook. We want you to be in on this play. We think this play has some real opportunities and great potential outcomes. It's at least playbook, but, but more than that, as we look at the rule book of our Bibles, while we don't have a command that says only one service, while we don't have a prohibition, do not exceed one service, what we see is one church gathering together as one because it is one. We see that in Scripture as the norm, in the ideal, and we can do it for about a million and a half bucks, and we think it's worth it. So what's next for Desert Springs Church's worship? On the one hand, nothing's next. Wash, rinse, repeat. Just keep going. Just keep doing What's next for our worship at Desert Springs Church? One church, one gathering, under one Bible, because we have one Lord, one baptism, one faith. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we worship you. We marvel at what you have done and what you've done for us and what you've done with us. We're thankful for your word in our midst. We want more of it. We want, we want more Sundays meeting together under your word, hungry for it, fed by it, shaped by it, sent out with it in celebration of the grace that you so freely give to those who will mourn their sins and trust in Christ. So, Lord, whatever plans are in store for our church, may no one in this room today be more concerned or distracted by any of that than this most important thing, 
that their works are approved because of Christ, and you send them out today in grace, with gratitude, to celebrate a salvation that they didn't deserve and could not earn. May we celebrate that wholeheartedly today. Because of Christ, amen.